0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Seven Investing Podcast. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm very excited because we are welcoming a new lead advisor to Seven Investing. His name is Daniel Klein, and I'd like to introduce him to all of you in the first part of this month's podcast Dan, first of all, welcome to 7investing. I am excited to be here. It has been a very long wait. We are very excited to have you too. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about
1: your background? Sure. Um, You know, I was born in 19... No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) So... I'm a journalist by by trade. I started as a college newspaper editor. I worked part-time at a, at a trade magazine covering the audio industry. My boss got fired over Christmas, where I'm still not sure why. I ended up becoming the editor of that magazine. So my senior year of college, I worked full-time at, at a magazine. I had to travel for work. And like explaining this to my teachers was not easy in a pre-cell phone day. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to be in class. I'm in Vegas that week for a trade show. Like That was a little tricky. I was an early internet pioneer. I was the editorial director of a site called Uproar.com, which uh, IPO'd back at a time where you could IPO with no revenue. Uh, I then worked for a men's lifestyle startup that got bought by Playboy, uh, and then have had a really weird career since then. Uh, I I ran a giant toy store. I spent four years working in my family's ladder and scaffolding business, and I actually think that's how I got into writing about business, because I kept interviewing for jobs, and I would say... When are you going to find a business guy who's actually bought commodities? Like I've bought steel. Like I understand how all this works. So finally a friend of mine calls and he says, you want to work for Microsoft? And I said, sure. So the, the guy from Microsoft calls me up and he interviews me a little and he says, do you want the job? And I said, what is the job? He said, I can't tell you what the job is. Do you want the job? And I said, uh, I guess I want the job. So I was the launch editor for the MSN money app. It wasn't called that. It was the windows eight finance app at the time, but I was the guy that picked what stories went, went in the app. And that's now done incredibly terribly by a robot. There's no more people involved, <laughs> but there used to be people. And I was the person at first. And I stayed there for a, a little over a year. And then I went to the Boston That was my childhood dream. I grew up reading the Globe uh, and I was running the business desk for Boston.com. And what I didn't know about the Boston Globe, which is a lovely place, is that there's a divide between digital people and print people, but I wasn't clued into that, so I was blissfully unaware, and most of the .dot .com editors on the Boston.com side didn't sit with the print people, but I did. I actually sat with the business team, who all hated me, and nobody spoke to me for like four months, except for the business editor, who was the acting business editor at the time, the regular one was out on maternity leave, and he liked me, and we got along. So I pushed and pushed and pushed, and he finally let me write write a story for the paper, thinking it was just going to be a big caption for a photo. and I wrote a story on PAX East, which is a, uh, a video game and gaming convention. It's a lot of people come in costumes. It's a pretty cool thing. And I handed it to the editor I was working with, and he read it. And I had sent in like a one o'clock draft so they could get get an early one up. And he he texts me back or emails me back, and he says, "Oh wait, you can do this. You can write." I'm like, "Yes, I have 20 years of journalism experience. The fact that I didn't come from the Pittsburgh Post Gazette or whatever doesn't mean I can't do this." He's like, oh, "Okay, let's let let's let's work in the story. Let's get it in front page contention." So my first story did not end up on the front page, but was pitched for the front page that day, led the business section. So I became a regular writer. The problem is my first day at the Boston Globe, which is really my introduction to the market and to covering business, but you know, other than being a curator at Microsoft, my first day there was the day the New York Times company put us up for sale. So I was, we didn't move. I still lived in Connecticut about two and a half hours away. Uh, I was commuting and staying at my mom's in Salem Mass Lot. It was really difficult. So I ended up going back to work for a, a small company in Connecticut that owned two daily newspapers. I was the editor of two daily newspapers and on the side, I started writing for motley fool for a a now defunct product called the business and the idea was to do things a little bit broader than just stock market coverage and and i worked there from like three in the morning to five in the morning for like two or three months before i finally went to my boss and quit my job with by the way at the time i was getting paid fifty dollars a story so this wasn't a smart decision i made i quit my job i went to work with a business partner he was building websites we just kind of sat in a room together and worked all day and and eventually ended up uh, buying some websites and doing some other things that made me some money. But at this time, I started getting indoctrinated. I started learning this is how the market works. I started out as a journalist, as a news reporter who was adding a little bit of analysis. And then over six years, I actually like woke up a few months ago and realized, oh my God, I'm a world-class analyst. Like I can, I can compete with all of these people who that's how they define themselves. Because I found myself hosting live shows with you know some of the the, the biggest names and going oh wait a minute like my opinion is is not only as valid sometimes it's more valid and the example i'll give and i i hate to talk about this one but Luckin coffee nobody can predict fraud but i always predicted Luckin was going to be a failure why because their business model was giving away coffee to get the chinese to like coffee here's the problem the premium brand is starbucks they were giving away a product to get people interested in what their competitor did. It wasn't going to help their brand. It was a bad strategy. It was never going to work. It's the old, I'm giving away, you know, $20 bills for $19 and I'm making it up on volume. It wasn't going to work. So I, you know, I gained a lot of confidence and from the point you and I started talking right at the beginning of the company was really when I started thinking, wow, like this is what I want to do. Like, I want to help people, you know, do better with their money.
0: Dan, one of the things I'm so excited about working with you here with Seven Investing is that you do, have not only had your pulse on what's going on in the business world out there from the journalism perspective, but you've also run the operations of so many different types of companies, such a diverse background, it's fascinating. I'm really excited to see your perspective on so many things. As a lead advisor for Seven Investing, you're gonna be making recommendations every month. I wanted to ask you in my next question, what would you, how would you describe your investing style and what types of companies do you tend to look for?
1: So I'm a singles hitter who occasionally shocks you with a home run. So, I, I, you know, I, I follow areas that people aren't that interested in. I, I follow retail. And look, I could have told you not to invest in a lot of retailers in the last few years, but it's tricky to tell you which ones were good. Is it sexy to say, go buy Costco or Walmart or Target? No, it's not, but those are all good companies you should probably own because you don't have to worry when you own those. And, I, and I'm not saying those aren't gonna be you know 10 baggers, but those are good, like nice things to just like, you got a little extra money, have a little bit of that. It'll go up steadily. I, I, I often call them elephant up a hill stocks. Like, you know, it's gonna get there. It's not gonna be that exciting. Um, but then occasionally I find some, you know, it could be retail, it could be a cannabis stock, it could be a little tech stock, like I cover a little bit of everything. I'm, I'm, I'm a voracious planner and reader, uh, which you'll see as we start our, our live streams. And sometimes I'll find something and I'll just spend like six months looking at it. I'll, I'll watch the earnings calls. I'll, I'll, I'll interview the CEO, like I'll do, and and I'll pick some company that like when I bring it up at the meeting, you all have to like look it up. And, and, and maybe that'll be my pick. So, you know, if you look at, if I make 12 picks this year, nine of them are going to be companies you've heard of. But when you hear my case for it, you're going to feel a lot better about it than maybe you did. The other three might be companies that you're like, wow, that's exciting. And if one of those threes hit and one will, you will do really, really well.
0: And you mentioned retail, but I know you also have a lot of experience in investing in media and entertainment companies as well, right, and telecom companies.
1: Yeah, media, entertainment. I'm probably the uh, the leading expert on cord cutting. Not that that's a thing to be that proud of, but like nobody's followed it on the level I have. And the shift we're going through with, look, everyone wants like the, the latest 5G stock, What? and they want you to name some like tech company they've never heard of that makes like a widget that's gonna sell. That's not how it works. It's really understanding what the adoption cycle is going to be what are T-Mobile, Verizon and AT&T actually doing? They're all running commercials saying they have 5G. You know what they don't have? They don't have 5G. That is a <laughs> real problem. Like, you know, and like what's Comcast or Charters business going to look like and how does that fit into you know what I invest in you, you might not invest in Comcast or Charter but you need to know what they're doing and what their sort of competitive advantage is as internet service providers that you know informs in how you might pick other companies so yeah I, I've often been called a jack of all trades my 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 negative about that is that phrase goes jack of all trades master of none I am a jack of all trades but I'm a master of a handful I have spent the last seven years studying Half of my day is just reading. I get up at seven in the morning every day for the last seven months of the pandemic, and I prepare a document of this is what's going on in the world to inform shows I'm gonna do. That's, that's work I like doing. I've always been a reader, though when it comes to reading books now, I read absolute garbage because my whole day is spent in like you know white papers and news stories and, and who knows what. But you know, I am really excited to sort of change people's minds on how they look at certain types of investing and types of companies.
0: Absolutely, Dan. We are so excited to have you on the team. Uh, for everyone listening to this, Dan is a very high impact guy. He's an advocate of the individual investors. He shares the same mission that we do of helping you invest in the stock market and make sense of this thing and get more actively involved in the money that you're saving out there uh dan how how should people get in touch with you? We know that you're going to be doing some live stream events with seven investing, but is there other ways that people can reach
1: out to you also? Sure. So I haven't changed. I'm going to change my Twitter handle, but I haven't changed it because I get to promote it In the former place i worked and it's beneficial to everybody for it not to change so right now my twitter handle is at worst ideas that is a play on my book worst ideas ever which is sort of a business book it's like new coke and the xfl the original one not not the new one you know some of the things it's kind of a, a funny scholarly treatise it's a really good book they don't send me any more money when you buy it they should but they don't so you know buy it if you like but you don't have to you so you can follow me there I am easy to find on, on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash Dan Klein, but probably the easiest thing to do, just shoot me an email. I am Klein, D K L I N E at seven. That is the number seven, or you can write it out investing.com. That email is up and running.
0: Absolutely. And like you said, worst ideas, there's a lot of changes underway in the media industry and the retail industry and the entertainment industry. I'm really looking forward to seeing some of your recommendations, Dan, and welcome to the 7investing team. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to get started. With that said, we'll now join the rest of this month's 7investing team podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Seven Investing Team podcast. Here at Seven Investing, our mission is to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing our best stock market opportunities for just $17 per month, but also educational content such as this podcast. My name is Simon Erickson. I'm a lead advisor here at Seven Investing. I'm joined by my other lead advisors, Matt Cochran, Steve Symington, Austin Lieberman, and Max Chatsko. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Excellent, can't wait to get started. Today's topic is going to be about international investing because investors kind of have a home court bias where we like to invest in the companies that are in our own country, that we're most familiar with, perhaps we're already consumers of their products but truly innovation is taking place all around the world. So it always helps as an investor to keep in mind those global opportunities. And so we're each going to be introducing a company that is on our investing radar that is not domiciled in the United States today. And before we get started, just a reminder, these are not official recommendations. These are simply ideas that have our interest and might be worth more due diligence in the future. So, Matt Cochran, I'm going to start with you. What is one international opportunity that's on your radar right now?
2: Uh, yeah, thanks, Simon. Uh, yeah, and it's so important to note that there are opportunities all around the world, and there's no need to just limit your scope to the the country we, you live in. Uh, you know, one company that's caught my eye, and I actually took a small position in uh, earlier this year, was uh, Singapore-based C. Uh it's quickly becoming a digital powerhouse. Uh, it has three very fast growing segments um, that are poised to capture more upside in in some of today's like largest industries. And that includes like video games, mobile commerce, and digital payments. And so, just real quickly, like Garena, that is C's global game developer and publisher. It has a significant presence in Southeast Asia and Latin America. In 2019, its game Free Fire was the most downloaded mobile game in the world across Google Play and iOS, according to App Annie. Uh, In its latest quarter, uh, C's digital entertainment revenue grew 62% year over year. Uh, Shopee is C's e-commerce platform, and that connects buyers and sellers uh, supported by payments, logistics, fulfillment and other value-added services. If you think Shopify, you're kind of in the right ballpark there. Um, Revenue in this segment, in its latest quarter jumped 188% uh, year over year. Uh, And then finally, uh, C money. That sees uh, e-wallet services. Uh, It offers just a bunch of financial products and services, uh, mobile wallets, payment processing, Uh, credit-related digital financial offerings. Uh, It's branded, depending on the market it's in, it's branded differently. Sometimes in some markets, it's known as AirPay. In some markets, it's known as Shopee Pay. uh, In some markets, it's known as Shopee Pay Later. And it has a bunch of other brands, but it's all uh, encompassed under C money. And while it's still the smallest of C's business segments, by a large margin, as far as like revenue contributed to the company goes, um, it still in its latest quarter saw more than one point six billion dollars in total payment volume, and it had more than fifteen million quarterly active users in C's most recent quarter. So um, that's the company that caught my eye. It, it has exploded this year. Like I, I took a small starter position uh, earlier this year before uh, before pre-COVID and I bought it between 40 and $50. I was hoping to add to it and it kind of got away to me. It's kind of tripled uh, unbelievably this year, but that's just because it's in all the right markets, uh, you know, in a post COVID world, um, you know, as mobile technology is taking off, especially in emerging markets uh, where uh, access to, to, to hardline uh, internet is not necessarily uh, popular or widespread. And so just it, it's in all the right places uh, for emerging markets. And that's why it's even, it's even starting to compete with uh, Mercado Libre on its own court in South America. It's, just, it's growing in a lot of different markets around the world. And so it's a company that's really caught my eye.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Matt. You said they're based in Singapore, but is its markets really mostly Southeast Asia? And is one of the reasons that it's doing so well, that it's different the United States is because they've kind of leapfrogged this desktop, you know, fiber in the ground and gone strictly to to mobile. Is that an opportunity for them?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's in like, yeah, it's, it's all across Southeast Asia. It's in Thailand, it's in Vietnam. I know those are large markets. Um, most Southeastern Asian countries, it has a, a significant presence. And like I said, it's even going into Latin America. Like uh, its game Free Fire is extremely popular in Latin America. And one of the reasons why is like it's Free Fire. It's almost like uh, it, it, it wouldn't necessarily be a popular game in the U.S. because its, uh, its graphic standards are a little bit less. It's, it's not meant for like a 4G LTE connection. Uh, but it's great for like a 3G or lower tier 4G connection. Um, but it, it, it's just like one of those uh, uh, first-person shooter games, shoot 'em ups like uh, like Fortnite and, and and other popular games, and it's just it's just exploded in popularity. Perfect. And the ticker on that, Matt, I believe, is SE. Correct. That is correct, and it's listed uh it's listed on the Nasdaq, so it has an ADR in the U.S.
0: Great. Thanks very much, Matt. C limited. Um, let's go on to the other side of the world here. Max Chatsko, let's go with you next. You, uh, your idea on your radar is a European energy company. Tell us a little bit more about this one.
3: Yeah. So I use this company called Equinor. I don't own it. I don't uh, plan on buying it anytime soon, but I kind of use it as a gauge to see how oil and gas majors are thinking about the energy transition. So Ecuador, a few years ago, was actually called Statoil, and it changed its name to remove the word oil from its name. And it also made this pivot in a way to kind of refocus investors on the long term. So it's taking its, uh, it's a Norwegian company, so it has a lot of experience in the North Sea, pretty choppy, volatile off-sea drilling area. So it's taking its experience there uh, in offshore oil rigs and gas rigs and using that to uh, become a first mover in offshore wind uh, power assets. So it's kind of an interesting uh, transition, if you will. Um, and especially because the offshore wind industry globally isn't very large. So it's still kind of this, it's expensive. There's still a lot of questions about is it going to become a thing? But on paper, it makes a lot of sense, right? You have a lot of uh, major population centers are, are along coastlines and offshore wind Is intriguing because it can be very uh, you can build huge wind towers Um, I mean some of those are like taller than the uh, you know Statue of Liberty or I mean they're just massive Um, and you know they they provide power uh, more consistently than onshore wind so that's exactly what you would need um, for you know a large city so Equinor uh, bought some acreage off of you know around the world in Europe in the United States in China uh, throughout recent years, and in the United States, that's kind of interesting because there's virtually no uh, offshore wind industry here at all. We have one w- offshore wind farm; it's very small. I think it's off the coast of Maine. It's up in New England, and it's like nothing. It's it's you know uh, pretty old technology. So Ecuador started going around and saying, "Hey, we're going to buy some some acreage off the coast of Massachusetts, some off the coast of New York." And this was when the Department of Energy started to really uh, open up acreage for for auctions. So the company bought a few different positions in the in uh, uh, offshore. So like it, it owns the Empire Wind project off the coast of New York City. Also owns Beacon Wind off of the coast of uh, Nantucket. And they bought these uh, you know um, acreage plots for about 180 million dollars total. And then just recently turned around, just uh, I think this month actually, and uh, sold half of the equity stake to BP, fellow oil and gas major for over a billion dollars and the two uh, agreed to you know develop the u.s market and so it's a kind of a, an interesting uh um you know partnership there right uh the pipeline for the u.s is uh in total offshore wind projects is like around uh, it's almost 30,000 megawatts so from zero to 30,000 that's pretty impressive and a lot of these might come online uh this before the end of this decade and there's like a Another like pipelines a little bit further off, maybe, but uh, up to 2035. So, this is something that could really come out of nowhere, be a huge opportunity, uh, provide a lot of uh, energy, a lot of electricity that's you know renewable, clean, uh, and help some of these major population centers wean themselves off of you know dirtier sources of fuel. Um, So, it's important to note though that this is a very small part of these overall businesses right now in Ecuador, Uh, it still predominantly generates most of its money from oil and gas production, but uh, you're starting to see other companies, you know, you have oil, that shell BP taking stakes in uh, renewable power uh, asset developers and you have uh, total the French major is investing in this very big investor in uh, energy storage, for instance, lithium ion batteries. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see where are these going to go uh, as the world starts to transition away from liquid fuels.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, Max, that uh, it seems like wind, just like oil, is a uh, kind of a geographic presence, right? There are certain places that are getting the best wind or the most interesting that companies are wanting to place those on. Is this an advantage for uh, Equinor in the the long term if they're going out and buying the most attractive spots before everyone else is?
3: Yeah, I think early on probably because it, it gobbled up all this acreage when it was still like a big question mark. Is this market going to develop? Um, so, yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah, great. Okay. And the ticker on that, I believe, EQNR, correct? Previously, Statoil, now Equinor, based up there in in Norway. Great one, Max. Uh, Let's go over to China for the next one. Austin Lieberman, your company is a uh, Chinese-based tech company. Simon, what if I told you that you could invest in a company with
4: 128% revenue growth, they had $98 million in revenue their last quarter, They grew active customers by 85% gross margin of 66% a dollar based net expansion rate, meaning customers are spending this much more each year of 183% over the trailing 12 month period. And they're profitable on a non adjusted basis uh, with $3 million in net income in the last quarter. What if I told you, you
0: could invest in that company? What would you say? I would say that is amazing. And I would demand you tell me the name of this company.
4: So I will I will tell you the name of the company. This company is called Agora, ticker symbol is API. And they've got actually a really unique structure. They They've got dual headquarters in China and Silicon Valley, but it's listed as an ADS in the United States. So technically they are a Chinese headquartered company and i talked it up a lot at the beginning right those are fantastic numbers but um as we've seen from from some companies that aren't necessarily they don't have to follow all of the sec regulations if they're not listed inside the us there are risks that can come with uh companies that that aren't as highly scrutinized by the sec and so as great as all of those numbers are Even me personally, right now, uh, if that was a a US listed company or a company that I was, I was more comfortable with, I'd probably want to invest right now, but I'm still in kind of a a learning mode to just try to learn more about this company. Um, But those numbers are fantastic, fantastic. And so what uh, Agora does um, Is they offer real time video calling voice calling live audio and video streaming as well as real-time messaging. And they serve all the biggest industries. So social media, gaming, retail, education, even telehealth. And basically they just allow developers on different teams to build these video, real-time video messaging capabilities into whatever platforms they're using. So if you've heard of a company called Twilio in the United States, they do a lot of um, API stuff where you can basically build messaging and even video um, from app to app or, or build uh, real-time video integrations, they do something similar to that uh, specifically with video. And then if you think about it, um, a big use case for this is uh, one of the more popular use cases is for retail streaming. So brands have utilized the technology to stream like live product demonstrations. And then you could have interactive features like uh, text and video chat so that, so that if you're, trying to sell something over social media or whatever, your audience can interact with you. Um, it was founded by uh, Bin Zhao, I think is how you say it. And it was actually founded in uh, Silicon Valley in 2013, um, prior to founding Agora. And this is interesting, um, is, is his, his background. Uh, he served as the director of a NASDAQ listed company called, uh, called YY. And most notably, he was a senior engineer at Webex from 1997 to 2004, the same time that Eric Wan was there from the founder of Zoom. Um, again, their main executive offices are in China. That's where most of its revenue comes from. Uh, more than 38% of its revenue comes from its top 10 customers, which are all in China. And so there's, there's a lot of um, international opportunity there, but also some international risk because... I also, as a consumer, I don't know the trends that are going on in China or other countries like I'm familiar with them in the United States.
0: Yeah, fantastic, Austin. One thing that I noticed about Agora is it's a usage-based model for revenue. And this is something you and I talked about a little bit before. How important is that to a, you know, kind of this machine-to-machine age that we're living in right now? Is that a huge advantage for investors? Yeah, I, I think I think so,
4: and and so the the kind of model for SaaS, and we've heard people talk about this, right? Even as as late as Jeff Richards, we just had him on the podcast. He's a venture capitalist. There's usage based, and then uh, per seat model. A great thing about usage based is even as we're entering a world where maybe companies are lowering their headcount a little bit, still, if more data or more video or more apps are used, that usage can still go up, even though seats are going down. And so that's the benefit of a usage based model. It, it can work the other way, though. Um, so just investors be aware of that sometimes usage based um, isn't isn't the absolute best either. So there's pros and cons.
0: Yep. Great, great pick, Austin. And just for anyone that's unfamiliar with the acronym, Austin had mentioned ADS in there, which stands for American Depository Shares. You also probably hear ADRs a lot, which is American Depository Receipts. Uh, both of these mean that there's a sponsor bank within the United States, which means you don't have to go to a foreign exchange to buy any of these companies that we're talking about today. You can buy them directly on American exchanges. Don't have to worry about the exchange rates. Don't have to worry about international currencies or any of that stuff. It makes it a lot easier uh, when you're, when you're, dealing with companies that have done the work to get their shares listed on American exchanges. Uh, Steve, let's keep the the trend going in China here. You also have a Chinese China company, a Chinese e-commerce leader.
5: I do. Uh, JD.com might be a name that some of you are familiar with if you're uh, interested in investing in China, but it's been on my radar for a couple different reasons lately. Uh, First, uh, I actually opened my first position after following the company for years back in March uh, it turned out to be good timing. Shares have roughly doubled since then, uh, but I still think uh, it has massive upside from here and, and could accelerate its growth uh, quite a bit over the next few years. Uh, right now, you know, we're already talking about a, a pretty big business. Its market cap is, I think, $119 billion uh, as of right now. And I mean, that's big in its own right, but it's still uh, also dwarfed by Amazon that's sitting, I think 1.54 trillion uh, is its market cap right now. And uh, it's also similar uh, as Amazon uh, here in the United States in that JD.com has made the decision uh, really early to invest heavily in its own logistics, warehousing, and delivery infrastructure uh, networks throughout China, rather than basically serving as a platform uh, as Say eBay has done, and uh, kind of like uh, Alibaba uh, in that sense. But uh, JD's basically uh, worked to differentiate itself from competitors uh, through this these heavy inges- investments in its logistics, warehousing, and delivery infrastructure, and um, you know that basically has come at the cost of profitability in these early stages. But over the long term, I think we'll see similar fruits as Amazon has enjoyed in growing its enterprise value. And, uh, it's really, uh, still doing very well. Uh, revenue last quarter was up, I think 34% year over year to 28.5 billion. And, uh, it's operating income more than doubled to 714 million. And, uh, I think it's, it's mobile, uh, user base increased by 40% year over year. We saw annual active customer counts up almost 30% to 417 million people. That's bigger than the population of the entire United States, uh, which is just stunning really. And, um, you know, it's also, um, working to kind of unlock the value of some of its subsidiary businesses, uh, through a series of IPOs. So that should be something to watch, uh, reportedly working to have IPOs for JD Logistics. Uh, it's fine. And that's its supply chain business. It's finance arm JD digits. It's online healthcare unit, JD health. Um, so lots of different pieces that it's kind of working to, um, unlock shareholder value uh, by potentially kind of breaking them out into their own ipos Um, but it's it's also um, another thing to guess keep in mind is that you know you're talking about china population 1.4 billion people they have a fast-growing middle class uh, with growing income and uh, in china just over a third of their overall retail sales currently comes from e-commerce channels today and that's uh, according to statista anyway up from about 12 percent just six years ago uh and they also expect that chinese e-commerce should more than double its share as a percentage of overall retail sales to 64 percent of china's total uh that really bodes well for any leader in the space especially jd given its differentiation uh with those higher investments in logistics and delivery and it's really putting its money where its mouth is uh lately i think only recently it spent around 440 million dollars to in uh to acquire, I think it's called Kauai express, forget me if I mispronounce that it raised almost 4 billion through a secondary Hong Kong listing recently. Uh, And they say they'll use those proceeds to primarily invest in key supply chain technology initiatives, uh, and improve operating efficiency. So as we see kind of the fruits of that scale, uh, it should really, um, be really impressive, uh, for shareholders. And finally, before I wrap it up, we got to talk about, uh, cloud computing efforts, you know, after all, uh, Amazon's AWS served as a lucrative source of incremental high margin revenue, uh, JD's services segment, uh, they don't even break out their cloud revenue yet because it's still so small, but these are still early days. Uh, we've seen a number of interesting partnerships lately to expand that reach. And, uh, I think, um, I think it's going to be a much bigger business, you know, five, 10 years down the road than it is today.
0: Yeah, and Steve, I know you are a huge fan of robotics and follow that that very very closely. Uh, tell me a little bit more about JD's logistics network. I mean, that's something they've put billions of dollars into the last yes. couple of years. Is that a huge competitive advantage against other e-commerce companies? I think it's massive,
5: and uh, it's something that a lot of other uh, businesses in China just don't have and aren't spending a lot of money on. You know, and there there are, I guess, some of the big leaders. You know, there's a potential that some of these really well-funded competitors will work to build out their own logistics networks, but it's something that JD's known for and it's pouring billions and billions and billions into this. Uh, so with automated warehouses and, uh, and, you know, contactless delivery options, and these are things that they have really worked really well on and really, really focused on, uh, especially during the pandemic uh, to maintain their momentum while any other competitors might stumble. And uh, I think, uh, those investments, especially in like AI, robotics, those sorts of things, those high-tech ways to expand their uh, logistics network uh, will pay dividends, uh, maybe not literally, but in terms of uh, expanding its enterprise value.
0: Yeah, absolutely. JD.com, that's a great one, Steve. And I will we'll wrap this all up with, um, my, my company is an Indian bank called HDFC Bank. Uh, ticker on that is uh, HDB. And what really attracts me about this is, is that India has got such a fast-growing middle class, right? This is, a com- this is a country that as a whole could be expanding its, its GDP by 7 to 8% per year for the next decade, just as there's more purchasing power for people to be buying things. But the government of India itself also knows that with all of this fast-growing middle class, it's going to have to have a lot of responsibilities as well. It's going to have to provide power for those people so it's building solar farms around the country it's going to have to have health care insurance for those people so it's got kind of a healthcare care scheme for the lowest earning half of its population right now and so India to do this is cracking down on paper currencies because there was a lot of fraudulent business activity taking place that people just weren't paying taxes for and it needed that tax revenue to fund those larger initiatives And so a couple of years ago, about five years ago now, India invalidated its 500 and 1,000 rupee notes, the paper currencies, said, hey, if you wanna keep those paper currencies, you've gotta change them, uh, exchange them with the banks. And so a lot of people did that, they kept currencies, but it also subtly nudged a lot of its population to do digital banking, where they weren't exchanging anymore with cash currencies, but actually using their cell phones for digital transactions and digital banking. And this is where HDFC really comes in because HDFC now is using cell phones for more than 90% of the transactions that are taking place. This isn't people going into the bank like we got used to when we were growing up uh, or using ATMs to get money out, but it's just completely over a cell phone. And that really gets its cost structure extremely low. HDFC is the country's largest bank, so it's got more and more deposits that it's bringing from India's 1.3 billion people at a very low cost to serve those operations. And of course, when the country is growing at seven or eight percent GDP, there's plenty of loans to be making out there for other businesses that want to start building out their operations too and so HDFC is just a, a a company that I think is going to be a compounder for several decades. It's in a huge amount of tailwinds from everything taking place in India, and it's one that I definitely have my eyes on internationally. And Simon, it's interesting to note too about HDFC Bank I mean it is
2: growing really fast its earnings. Uh, from 2015 to 2019 grew four and a half times its earnings per share. I mean, that's incredible for a bank. You just, you'll never see that in the U.S.
0: Yeah, it's one of those inflection points, right? Not just growing uh, linearly. Yeah.
4: Simon, I'm not super smart on the banking industry, especially not internationally. How reliant are they on interest rates? And what is that dynamic like um, in India and are there any differences versus in India compared to US banks
0: it is it's much higher over there right now and a lot of people are used to getting just interest rates from uh, more conservative investments rather than putting your money in the stock market you can get a much higher interest rate or at least for most of the population just just parking that in, in a in a bank you know in a CD or something that's a lower cost. Uh, lower risk investment and exchange rates kind of also are are an interesting dynamic between the United States and India too. A lot of Indian investors that are starting to learn about investing are investing internationally because the exchange rate is favorable for them too. Uh, But to answer your question directly, Austin, I think that it's a benefit to HDFC that the population of India likes more conservative investments, like putting your money in a bank and then letting HDFC use that for its own loan book. And so there's our international opportunities that our teams come up with this month. Again, to recap them, Matt said C Limited, ticker SE, a Singapore-based game maker, e-commerce provider, and also a finance company. Max went with Equinor, EQNR, which is based in Norway, an energy company looking more at offshore wind. Austin went with Agora, ticker API, which is enabling video calling and streaming uh, for a lot of apps that are out there in China. Steve went with JD, uh, which is the ticker JD, also in China, one of their e-commerce leaders that's building out a logistical network. And I went with the Indian Bank, HDFC Bank, which ticker is HDB. So I hope that everyone enjoyed this month's 7 Investing Team podcast. Once again, our mission is to empower you to invest in your future. We are 7 Investing. Thanks for tuning in.